Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. Except once a month when we do horror-adjacent bonus episodes as selected by our patrons on patreon.com slash Podcast. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? I am super excited. <laughs> For this movie? Yeah. Yeah, I know this is like one of your favorites, right? Like going back to like childhood? It's definitely a childhood favorite. Yes. Tonight we are watching Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island from 1998, directed by Jim Stenstrom. Okay, cool. So we are probably, well, actually, I know we are not getting this episode out on time. This is not coming out on the last Saturday of the month. And listener, I'll apologize for that. However, it is Sarah's birthday uh, on the Monday that this episode will probably come out on. Um, And we're holding a party for her on the Saturday that this episode would normally have come out on. And your lovely hosts, your dedicated hosts here, just bought their own castle scream scene after um years of uh well renting castle scream scene um and so things have been very busy here and uh well we're just trying to fit these things in when we can it's a game of tetris every week right tetris with bits and pieces of our lives yes Sarah, I wanted to ask you a question before we dived into talking about this movie, like, specifically. Okay. Which is, can you tell me about, like, you and Scooby-Doo? Like, you (laughs) and the franchise Scooby-Doo? Because um, as long as I've known you, you've been a fan of Scooby-Doo. Yes. Uh, Well, I mean, I think I've been a fan of Scooby-Doo for most of my life, I guess. Mm. Which is scary to think about. My mom's a fan of Scooby-Doo. And so when the show would have reruns on TV, mom would be like, oh, hey, Scooby-Doo. And I'd be like, oh, let's watch it. And then that's kind of how I started watching it. Definitely when I was growing up, my main exposure was through old reruns on uh, the Canadian channel Teletoon. Mm -hmm. And those reruns were typically the like late 60s, early 70s show. Right. Like the original incarnation. Exactly. When Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island came out, it seemed to be like a big deal. Like it got like a a premiere on Teletoon, if I recall correctly. And uh, they would also show it frequently whenever it was Halloween season, which yeah. of course is my favorite season. Of course. Um, so yeah, I just like grew up watching it a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah. What about you? What was like your first touchstone for Scooby-Doo? Well... Um, before I answer that question, I, I wanted to ask you a follow-up, which okay. was, there have been a lot of different incarnations of Scooby-Doo. We've had, you know, the original Hanna-Barbera cartoons of the 70s. We have these, like, 90s direct-to-video Scooby-Doo movies, of which this was the first. You have the live-action movies, which kind of, like, cleverly cast, like, horror movie alums as the Scooby gang. You have, uh, like, more recent 
animated series like Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. Um, you have like weird Scooby-Doo things like that post-apocalyptic Scooby-Doo comic that like DC did for a <laughs> while. And like the Velma and Daphne uh, like high school, like girls detective movie that was kind of more like a Disney Channel original movie than anything. And then like Mindy Kaling, I think, is having like a Velma show coming out that looks like wild. Um, yep. There was very recently the um, big budget CGI movie Scoob uh, that like. <laughs> good, good wave. Thank on you. The, on the oob. Thank you. Um, that came out. So like there's been a lot of different incarnations of the gang. Um, so I want to know which is your preferred version of Scooby-Doo? It might be this movie, mm-hmm. but also forefront of mind is the live action, like 2002 right. movie. Right. Yeah. So I was never like a big fan of Scooby-Doo growing up. It was like on TV, but I think by the time I actually saw it, because you're right, it reran on Teletoon a lot. And by the time my family like had Teletoon, I was like, I don't know, probably you know, nine or 10 years old. And by then I, I, you know, that's for kids. Yeah, basically. Right. (laughs) Which like, you know, 10 year olds who are like that. Right. But it was like, the other thing I think was, you know, I'd been into cartoons growing up like Batman, the animated series and Spider-Man, the animated series and the X-Men animated series and like gargoyles and like stuff like that. And so it was really obvious to me that like Scooby-Doo was like very cheap and repetitive, um, which, you know, is true. But at the time I couldn't get into the charm of that because sure. like, I was like, no, I'm into grown up things. And the other thing was I found the theme song like horrendously annoying. I just like couldn't jive with the theme song when I was a kid. The Scooby Dooby Doo, where are you? Exactly. Okay. Um, And then like because of the success of these movies, as well as like the live action movies that came shortly after, it felt like Scooby Doo was getting like really, really pushed hard for a while in like merchandise and like follow up shows and things. And it just wasn't my bag. Um, And that changed with Scooby-Doo Mystery Inc., which was a show that I probably never would have watched if it wasn't for internet blogger Chris Sims, who pointed out that he really liked it. He's a big Scooby-Doo fan. And he basically pointed to Mystery Inc. as like the um, like platonic ideal of Scooby-Doo. It has, you know, a serialized narrative, but also like episodic things. It manages to be like really like kind of scary, gruesome um, at times, but still like obviously comedic. Um, It has some interesting takes on the characters, but the thing that made Scooby-Doo finally click for me was an article that Sims wrote for the now defunct website Comics Alliance. Um, I think it was for the Ask Chris column, but I don't quite remember. But it was essentially something, the title was something along the lines of like Scooby-Doo and secular humanism. And secular humanism is like a belief philosophy that is, you know, non-religious and positive about humanity and like the triumph of reason and things like this. And Sims goes on to explain in the article about how like the core storytelling conceit 
of Scooby-Doo and one that Mystery Inc. really leans into is that um, all the adults are lying to you in the world. Um, They are all out for like nefarious capitalist scams uh, that it's up to young people to kind of unmask them. Um, But also that Scooby-Doo is a show about proving that monsters aren't real. Like it's this very secular humanist thing of like Shaggy or Scooby, you know, have the superstitions and every single time it's like, is the ghost real? And then every single time it's, you know, old man McGillicuddy or whatever. And it's like showing you that essentially the superstitions of the world are made up usually so some old white guy can scam you out of some money. And, you know, Sims goes on to say, like, that's really unique in children's television to have a show where essentially the moral of the story is to, like, question things and investigate things and, like, not take things at face value and that, like, ghosts aren't real and, like, the supernatural isn't real. And that, like, that's the core conceit of the show is that, like, these kids go around and prove that the monsters aren't real. And that made Scooby-Doo finally, like, click for me because it got me to see it on a level that didn't just make me think of, um, honestly, the monkeys live action TV show from the sixties, because for whatever reason I grew up, uh, like I did see the monkeys as a kid before I saw Scooby-Doo. And so when I saw Scooby-Doo do the, like the hallway chase gags, Mm -hmm. I just thought of the monkeys. Now, of course, I'm pretty sure those date back to like the three stooges or even earlier, but that's what I thought of. Um, so those articles really made me get scooby-doo i really liked mystery incorporated um i enjoyed watching it with you all of which is to say that i have a dislike for this movie and the follow-ups to it like the specific because <laughs> like in the different eras of scooby-doo this is the first in like a little sub era from like around 98 to 2001 or something of these direct-to-video movies that were then like this was what the franchise was for a while um and i think all of them share the conceit which was like you know taking the franchise in a different direction at the time i suppose of like making the monsters actually real though from my research that is an inaccurate understanding of scooby-doo uh, that this is the first to make them supernatural. Okay, interesting. I, I'm interested to hear more. Okay. But yeah, I just wanted to conclude by saying like, I think that for me, a core thing of the appeal of Scooby-Doo is that the monsters aren't real. And ergo, stuff like this where the monsters are real, like loses the point of the show for me. Um, so I'm not a fan of this movie. You grew up with this movie and are thus like a big fan. So we're going to see tonight basically if like watching this movie again with you this time, because this is the first time I've ever seen it like with you, mm-hmm. um, will help me like come around on this movie. So in order for me to talk about the original Scooby-Doo, I need to give some context, of course, about Hanna-Barbera. Sure. This company was formed from William Hanna and Joseph Barbera. They met at MGM Animation Studios in 1937. And in their partnership, often Hanna would supervise uh, the animation and Barbera would uh, cover the stories in pre-production. So at MGM, they cut their teeth on Tom and Jerry 
and many, many, many others. Yeah, didn't they like create Tom and Jerry or at least were like the original like team to do them? Yeah, the OG team. Yeah. When Tom and Jerry won some awards and mm. like prestigious awards, they were a little miffed that the producer uh, got to take all that credit when he had nothing to do with anything right just like the mgm producer or whatever exactly i always find it really interesting that hanna barbera like started on tom and jerry because tom and jerry was done by like mgm as you said so those cartoons had just buckets of money so the animation in them is like really really good even though i've never really been a tom and jerry fan tbqh and I always just find that interesting because to me, like the hallmark of Hanna-Barbera animation is like absolute cheapness. Yes. Well, Barbera famously said, quote, I don't think it matters to kids whether we put in 40,000 or 4,000 drawings, as long as the entertainment is there. Probably true. <laughs> in 1957, MGM decided we don't need this animation studio. We got enough in the backlogs that we can just show reruns mm. with our movies. So we don't need to be producing more. Hannah and Barbara pitched one last show about like a, a cat and dog duo just to kind of be like one last chance at the mm. big leagues. And it was to no avail. But through a mutual connection, Hannah and Barbara met with Harry Cohn and uh, who was like head of Columbia. Columbia. Um, he invested money into their company and they signed a distribution deal with Screen Gems mm. and thus Hanna-Barbera Productions was formed. Okay. That was in 57? That was in 57. Okay. Now, the idea that they had pitched to MGM created Hanna and Barbera's first cartoon and it's the Rough and Ready show. Man, I've never heard of that. If you saw the characters, you would recognize them. Sure. It was successful. And then they had their next big hit with the Flintstones in 1960, the Yogi Bear Show and the Jetsons in 1961 and 62. Um, and largely in like the early 60s, all of these are basically animated sitcoms. Yeah. And, and to be clear, like the Tom and Jerry stuff was theatrical shorts in front of movies. And now they've shifted to being on TV. Correct. Yeah. In the mid-60s, there were hits across cartoons on television that were very, like, superhero-focused. Mm. In the case of Hannah and Barbera, um, they had uh, Space Ghost and Birdman and the Galaxy Trio. And things are going great. Until... Did they do Johnny Quest, too? They yeah. did. Okay. Parent-run organizations like Action for Children's uh. Television... Uh, protested the level of violence on Saturday morning cartoons. Mm -hmm. You know, the gratuitous violence that you see on Johnny Quest. Yeah. Um, and so many of these superhero shows were canceled. So the television networks are like, well, now what do we do to fill those time slots? Right. And like the, the big thing with Hanna-Barbera where they really deserve a lot of credit, I think, even though people kind of shit on them for the cheap animation, is that like that cheap animation made doing tv animation fucking like possible because i think nobody really did original tv animation before them it was all just like oh let's put some old bugs bunny cartoons on tv and that kind of stuff and it's like they they were the ones who figured out how to do tv animation yeah because animation is expensive exactly enter 
CBS executive Fred Silverman. Okay. Are you familiar with this guy? I think I probably should be, but the name's not coming to me. Okay, so he is on the hunt for something new. Um, Silverman was born in 1937 in New York City. Uh, He went straight from high school to earn his bachelor's at Syracuse University and then on to Ohio State University for his master's. And uh, his master's degree was just over 400 pages where he analyzed 10 years of ABC programming. Whoa. I don't know how he did that because they didn't keep any of those tapes, man. Yeah. Like, how did you do that in the era of like live TV? Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So he was hired at his local television station and then worked his way up to be hired at CBS, um, where he would oversee daytime programming. Now, he had come up with this idea of an Archie TV show. Because, you know, he's buying groceries. He sees the comics. He's like, ah, perfect. Teens are in. And he's like, okay, let's produce um, the cartoon, The Archie Show, It began running on CBS 1968, and it has a band, teens, and a dog. There was a dog on the Archie's? There was a dog, hot dog. I don't remember that. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, Jughead's dog? Yeah, Jughead's dog. Yeah, I remember him from Afterlife with Archie, mostly. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that was the show that produced the number one single of 1968, I think, Sugar Sugar. Yes. And so Silverman went to Hannah and Barbera and was like, hey, like... The Archie show is doing really great and we need more like programming that isn't going to upset parents. What do you got? Mm. So Hanna-Barbera was like, okay, um, well, what if it was something like, I don't know, uh, like the radio show from the 1940s called I Love a Mystery meets teens with Archie. Right. Okay. Do you know about this radio show? Uh, no, I don't. There was a lot of radio shows back in the day. So this, uh, is a radio show that aired from 1939 to 44, and it's about three friends who ran a detective agency and traveled the world in search of adventure. That's the gist. Got it. So Hannah and Barbara came up with the title House of Mystery and then passed that idea onto story writers Joe Ruby and Ken Spears to develop with character oh, designer shit. Iwaro Takamoto. Ruby Spears. Yes. They went on to do their own company later on. Yes. I knew you would be familiar with Ruby and Spears because um, they their company produced Thundar the Barbarian. Yes. And also like a decent Superman animated series in the 1980s. Yes. 1988 specifically. That's correct. Because <laughs> I just looked it up. Uh, so Joe Ruby was born in 1933 in L.A. to Canadian parents. <laughs> After high school, he joined the U.S. Navy and served during the Korean War as a sonar operator. So once Joe Ruby was back stateside, he went to art school and then straight into working at Disney. Um, He had a side hustle for making his own comics, but for the most part, he was focused at Disney. Um, He actually worked as a um, sound editor. So in 1959, he moved over to Hanna-Barbera and met Ken Spears, and that was the beginning of a great writing friendship. Got it. Now, Spears had also served in the Navy. He was born in 1938 in L.A., 
Um, and in high school, Spears was friends with William Hanna's son. Hmm. Uh, so after the Navy, uh, Spears was hired at Hanna-Barbera as a sound editor. And together, Spears and Ruby toiled in the Hanna-Barbera mines, working their way out of sound editing into story writing. Got it. Meanwhile, uh, Iwao Takamoto was born in 1925 in L.A. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor and throughout World War II, his family was forced to relocate to an internment camp. Um, during that time, he learned illustration from two other artists who were there. And then after the war, Takamoto didn't really have, you know, a professional portfolio because he was in the internment camp. So he took his personal sketchbook and applied at Disney and got a job. Good for him. Uh, he was hired as an assistant animator in 1945 and would be a character designer on Cinderella in 1950, Peter Pan in 53, Lady and the Tramp in 55, Sleeping Beauty in 59, and 101 Dalmatians in 61. Okay. Lots two, of dogs. Two, yep. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, impressive CV. Yes. But, the, but once you said 101 Dalmatians and I started comparing, like, Pongo to every Hanna-Barbera dog in my head, something just sort of clicked. Yes. Um, specifically, think about Astro for the Jetsons. Yes. Because um, in 1961, Takamoto headed over to Hanna-Barbera and his first thing was coming up with Astro for the Jetsons. Now, Takamoto, Ruby, and Spears came up with uh, a new title for this proto-Scooby-Doo called Mysteries 5. So Mysteries 5 would have the teens Jeff, Mike, Kelly, Linda, and her brother W.W. with uh, the dog Too Much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, they are a band, and Too Much played the bongos. Okay, yeah, He was originally designed to be a Great Dane, but then switched uh, due to fears that he would be too much like Marmaduke. Okay. So then he was made into a sheepdog. Okay. And then when they pitched this to Hannah and Barbara, Barbara was like, no, keep it as a Great Dane. I don't want it looking like hot dog from Mm, the Archies. Sure. Um, He also wanted them to simplify the characters. So... Takamoto decided, okay, what would a great Dane who plays the bongos look like? And he decided it would be the opposite of a prize-winning great Dane. (laughs) Right, which is why, like, Scooby is, like, a gangly mess (laughs) of a dog. Uh, Bowed legs, sloped back, double chin, all of that comes from Takamoto. Got it. Now, part of simplifying the characters... Uh, led to Ruby and Spears going like, okay, well, what if instead of basing it off of Archie, we based it off of this um, 1959 sitcom called The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis? Right. Because, you know, ripping off old 50s sitcoms had worked really well for Hanna-Barbera in the past. Absolutely. So they simplified the characters to be Jeff, Kelly, Linda, and W.W., Jeff being the Dobie parallel. Right. Um, And eventually those names were changed into Jeff becoming Fred, Kelly becoming Daphne, Linda, Velma, and WW into Shaggy. Got it. And it's wild to me that originally Velma and Shaggy were supposed to be siblings. Yeah, especially when you have seen Mystery Incorporated. Yes. Um, Not that I think, I think it's always a mistake to give Velma any kind of... um, Heterosexual relationship. Correct. 
It's at this point that they change the name from Mysteries 5 to Who's This is Scared? <laughs> I love these like title iterations. Now you might be wondering, how does Too Much become Scooby-Doo? Yeah. Well, um, that CBS executive, Fred Silverman, was on a red-eye flight and he heard Frank Sinatra's scatting in Strangers in the Night. Oh. And he was like... That's cool. That's hip with the kids. Let's name this dog Scooby-Doo. Right, because, like, Frank Sinatra's, like, all, like, you know, booby-dooby-doo kind exactly. of stuff. Yeah, okay. With that name change, the title changed to Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Now, Silverman and CBS loved this whole concept. They gave it the green light, and the first episode aired in 1969. It had two seasons, so it ran until 1970. And now... Here's when my understanding of the Scooby-Doo universe has changed in doing this research. Every time I learn stuff about an old, iconic cartoon show, it always, like, shocks me when I learn how few episodes they actually had. Like, Inspector Gadget was on the air for two years with original episodes, and I watched that shit 10 years later in the 90s. No idea it was, like, an old show. And I think, like, the Jetsons had, like, one season and shit like that. Like, it's always shocking to me. Well, here's the thing. They had enough episodes to reach syndication, right? Mm -hmm. And then they would end that show and start a new show. And Hanna-Barbera's animation style is such that it all looks like the same show. Right. Like, there was, like, eight or nine different versions of Super Friends. Yeah, there are multiple Jetson seasons and, and series, technically. Mm. And even though Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? finished airing in 1970, they started with a new series called The New Scooby-Doo Movies. They're m considered movies because they were hour long. <laughs> Got it. And this aired from 72 to 1974, two seasons. Okay. I was like, oh, it's only like Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? And that's it. And it just kind of got rerun. And then eventually this movie came out. Right. That is not the case at right, all. Right. Scooby-Doo has been a mainstay right up till the 80s. Right. It's I, I am shocked. Okay. Shocked and amazed. Okay. So after the new Scooby-Doo movies, mm -hmm. we get a new show in 1976, the Scooby-Doo show. Okay. But what's different here is that it's no longer on CBS. It's on ABC. Oh, did Fred Silverman die? Did he move to ABC? He moved to ABC, Ben. Got it. Okay, it was one of two <laughs> he answers. He died and went to heaven. <laughs> ABC. Got it. I mean, it would have been a dream for him. He wrote his thesis, thesis on, on ABC. So he took Scooby-Doo with him. He was like, ABC, listen, you hire me, you get Scooby-Doo. Amazing. Basically. Amazing. Now, before moving to ABC, um, the thing that I thought you would recognize with Fred Silverman is in 1971, he oversaw the Rural, the Rural Purge, Purge at yes. CBS. That's what I thought I knew him from. That is exactly what I thought I knew him from, and I wasn't sure. Yes. The infamous Rural Purge, where like yes. CBS's programming was just full of like country hicks, and he was like, none of that anymore. No. <laughs> So all of that stuff kind of got taken off the air, which made room for such hits like All in the Family, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and M.A.S.H. Yes. Um, this is also when he really hit onto another gold nugget that would follow him through his career, which is 
spinoffs becoming hits. Sure. Yeah. Like All in the Family has a spinoff. Um, MASH has a spinoff. Exactly. So once he moved to ABC, uh, he was hired as president of entertainment. <laughs> what a title. Amazing title. Um, and once he moved over in 1975, he basically saved Happy Days and spun the show Laverne and Shirley off. And then from that, spun Mork and Mindy off. I didn't know Mork and Mindy was a Laverne and Shirley spinoff. Yeah. Wild. Wild. He would also... Aliens are real in the Happy Days universe. <laughs> so... <laughs> He would also greenlight The Bionic Woman, Charlie's Angels, and many more, like, iconic, oh, I remember watching that growing up kind of shows. Um, I also wanted to note that Silverman greenlit the miniseries Roots. Oh, shit. Without which we might not have LeVar Burton. I mean, we probably wouldn't have, like, prestige television as yes. a concept without Roots. The other big change when he moved over to ABC is that uh, their animation department dropped Filmation in favor of bringing in Hanna-Barbera. Sure. Yeah. Filmation was like Hanna-Barbera's like even cheaper <laughs> competitors. So with bringing in Hanna-Barbera, we got the 1976 to 1978, the Scooby-Doo show is important to note because it aired 1976 to 1978. Something happened in between those two years, 1977. Star Wars came out? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm picturing Scooby-Doo as Luke Skywalker. Um, no, Shaggy would be Luke Skywalker, <laughs> for sure. Scooby is like... Chewy? R2-D2? Like in okay. the back of the X-Wing? <laughs> no, um, Ruby and Spears went to go make their own company uh, with Silverman's help. Oh, no. <laughs> so they formed their own production company called Ruby Spears Production. And uh, as previously stated, they were behind Thunder the Barbarian in 1980, Alvin and the Chipmunks in 83, mm -hmm. and the Superman animated show in 88. Though uh, Ruby and Spears both point to Thunder the Barbarian as being like the thing they're most proud of. So now, without Ruby and Spears, Hannah and Barbara continued with 1979's television show Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo. Ah, here's where Scrappy-Doo comes in. Yes. Now, this is a notable television show because it's the last show to use the Hanna-Barbera laugh track. Oh, okay. So I, I touched on where Ruby and Spears have kind of gone for, um, up to this point. Let me just briefly reel things back to briefly talk about where... Iwao Takamoto has ended up. So he continued working at Hannah and Barbera Studios. Um, I would describe him as a lifer. Got it. Um, and he directed even their first feature film, which was 1973's Charlotte's Web. Oh, I didn't know that was Hannah Barbera. Huh. Yeah. Cool. Um, and yeah, just continued working there. And uh, even right up until... Um, when he passed away in 2001, I want to say, um, he was working at Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers eventually bought Hanna-Barbera. Hanna so yeah. he's, he's a lifer. Got it. This is where he will leave the story, but he ends up in a good place. Right. That old animating studio in the sky. <laughs> In 1966, I know I'm, I'm rewinding yeah, no, again. Yeah, totally. It's a mess. It's Listen, a mess. It's fine. Then. It's fine. In 1966, 
the Taft Broadcasting Company had purchased Hanna-Barbera Studios um, and became their distributor. And I bring this up because in 1981, Taft Broadcasting bought Ruby Spears. (laughs) You can't escape us. (laughs) So rather than being a competitor, they became a sister company. After the 1980-1982 Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo television series, we get uh, new Scooby-Doo mysteries in 1983-84. And then, this will blow your mind, Ben. In 1985, we get one season of The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. I've heard that title, and I always assumed it was a reference to like the William Castle movie, 13 Ghosts. I mean, maybe. Sure. I don't know when that came out the 60s or something okay yeah this is 85 so probably there you go uh but this is notable because first instance of scooby-doo having supernatural villains oh okay like the ghosts of the title are are real are real ghosts. sure okay so there you go 1985 is what you can point to okay um after that we get um <laughs> so you know what else happened in the 80s Muppet Babies? Muppet Babies. Yeah. So in 1988 to 91, we get a pup named Scooby-Doo. Four seasons. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. There's more episodes of a pup named Scooby-Doo than there are of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Yes. That's That seems wrong, but okay. And that is where Scooby-Doo was laid to rest <laughs> for a while. Got it. Now, I will say, throughout all this whole time there have been direct-to-tv movies for scooby-doo sure like specials i guess yeah i think that would be the best way to describe them and i bring this up because you mentioned muppet babies that's not the first time that the muppets influenced scooby-doo um do you know offhand what happened in 1979 i mean isn't that when the muppet show started airing or am i wrong um i don't know about the muppet show but that's when the muppet movie Oh, okay. Then the show would be much earlier. Okay. Yeah. That's when the Muppet movie came out. Sure. Yeah. So June, 1979, uh, December, 1979 is when the very first Scooby-Doo direct to TV movie came out on ABC called Scooby goes Hollywood. Okay. And it's basically the plot of the Muppet movie. Uh, Okay. And now I, I, I I don't know if it's possible to be like directly ripping off. Obviously there's a long pre-production thing, but clearly something was in the air for people to be like sure. riffing off themselves. The last television movie of Scooby-Doo before the one that we're watching now is from 1988, Scooby-Doo and the Reluctant Werewolf. And it's supernatural, Ben. Okay. So they kind of just like decided to make that shift with 13 Ghosts and like stuck with it. Um, No, there were movies throughout um, the 80s. Mm. Uh, I think the earliest one that would be supernatural is um i think it's called scooby-doo meets the boo brothers and they're little ghosts that are brothers um which like sad for the parents man (laughs) so like i said scooby-doo goes down for a nap after (laughs) 1991 Uh coincidentally that's when hannah barbera and coincidentally also ruby spears uh was purchased by turner broadcasting company that's, that's, that's Pac-Man going, om nom nom, which uh, is what yes. Ted Turner did at the time. Ugh, that's what they're all doing, Ben. Yeah. So Turner Broadcasting did this to basically compile all the cartoons into his vault. Oh, yeah. Uh, to launch the Cartoon Network in 1992. Yeah. 
uh, powered by reruns and some new shows, including The New Adventures of Captain Planet and The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest. Yeah, that was whole Ted Turner's whole deal was like buy the rights to everything so that you can show it on TV. Exactly. Now, in 1996, Turner Broadcasting Company merged with Time Warner. Mm -hmm. Um, So now I will be referring to things as Time Warner and Warner Brothers. Yeah. Um, Also coming out during this time, thanks to uh, Time Warner and everything, is uh, Dexter's Lab, Powerpuff Girls, essentially all the uh, cartoons of my childhood. Right. All the big Cartoon Network original programming once they like had enough money to not rely on reruns so much. Exactly. But they would still be running the reruns of Scooby-Doo and the Jetsons and the Flintstones. Yeah, you had to fill a whole day back then. I will say, because you were talking about like how you weren't aware of all this like in-between stuff, the original show and the 90s, I did know about the new Scooby-Doo movies because I knew that he teamed up with people. And I knew about Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo. Because I remember just knowing that, like, at one point they introduced Scrappy-Doo and everyone fucking hated him. And then I also knew about um, a pup named Scooby-Doo only because of some other research I did for this movie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when they were first coming up with um, the dog too much, they weren't sure what his personality was going to be. And basically, there were two options. And the option they went with became Scooby-Doo. And the option they didn't go with was Scrappy-Doo. So their options were like big, dumb, and lovable, or like little, annoying, know-it-all. Yep. Got yep. it. Got it, got it, got it, got it. So Cartoon Network is pumping out its own stuff through the 90s. Also happening in the mid to late 90s, uh, anime comes to the West. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the late 90s was a huge animation boom. Got Dragon Ball Z, Gundam Wing, Sailor Moon, stuff that is being marketed as like for for on the older side of kids like 10 year olds instead of eight year olds exactly uh and so cartoon network specifically time warner sees the popularity of scooby-doo reruns and when i say popular i mean like they're ranking real high and so they're like well what if we gave scooby-doo a direct-to-video movie and just like test the waters see what happens and what if it was like on the side of an audience that would be into anime like that older huh. like a like a 10 to 12 year old instead that's, of like a young eight-year-old that's sort of ironic given like what i said earlier about how i didn't get into scooby-doo because i was a 10 to 12 year old like clearly this didn't work on me the intended target audience <laughs> i guess the person who was like i'm not into scooby-doo because it's for eight-year-olds yeah and so that brings us to this movie got it so one thing that I've never been able to understand, but I have some theories about it, is like, why did Scooby-Doo have a resurgence in popularity in the late 90s? And like, I know it's because the reruns did really well. And my suspicion is that like the reruns were watched just as much by like stoner kids in college as they were watched by like actual children. Because I don't think actual children of the 90s would be influenced by this. But when you cast your mind back, like, the late 90s were like a big period of like late 60s nostalgia. Yeah, because like, our parents. Yeah. And like so that's, like, like I said, that's how I started watching Scooby-Doo. It's because mom watched. Right. And like, you know, you had stuff like Austin Powers coming out and like the whole Spice Girls aesthetic was very like mod London inspired. I just mm-hmm. remember like everyone being really into 
late sixties stuff. So I figure like that's the only thing that makes sense to me is because otherwise Scooby-Doo, at least like Scooby-Doo, where are you is like the most 1960s ass shit. Yeah. Like Shaggy's a draft dodger. Yes. That's like a thing that's true and real. That's not like some (laughs) weird fan theory. That's like an episode that happened. Anyways. So Time Warner didn't give a fuck about this movie. (laughs) They were like, yeah, here's some money. We don't care what you do. This is just a test. Right. Um, They had a fancy new algorithm that told them that we think that there was a market for a direct-to-TV Scooby-Doo movie. Got it. So little oversight, lots of creative freedom. And probably more money than any Scooby-Doo thing had ever had up to that point. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Time Warner was like, here you go, Hanna-Barbera division, deal with it. And left it up to um, producer David Doy. Now, David Doy, he's been involved in Hanna-Barbera for a while. He started out as an assistant animator on Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings film. Okay. Um, and then made his way to Hanna-Barbera and been there since. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Yeah. Got it. Now, I will say he has not worked on any previous Scooby-Doo project, but he's worked on a lot of Hanna-Barbera shit. So he knows everyone in the company. Um, and so he knows that we have veterans of talent. So he sources Glenn Leopold to write the screenplay and Jim Stenstrom to direct. Glenn Leopold's first Scooby-Doo project was 1979's Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, but he's been writing with Hanna-Barbera since 1977. Um, I thought you might be interested. He wrote for the 1979 Godzilla TV show. Oh, I fucking hate that show so much. Oh, okay. Forget I said that then. (laughs) I hate that for an entire generation of like American ironic people, that's Godzilla to them. Sure. I hate it so much. He also wrote for 1984's Super Friends, mm-hmm. 1985's Scooby-Doo and the 13 Ghosts, and hold on to your hat, Ben, 1995's Biker Mice from Mars. Oh, shit. Biker Mice from Mars. Biker Mice from Mars. Yeah, a, a Teenage Mutant Ninja <laughs> Turtles ripoff. Yeah. Biker Mice from Mars. Yeah, My I remember God. that shit. So this is all like his animation stuff. I will say he did do some film work i would suspect just like helping out friends because um the two that i'm going to point to here is uh helping write the script for um 1981's uh indie slasher film the prowler okay and 1985's slasher indie film too scared to scream i've never heard of either of them I think it's fine that you haven't, but I think it's interesting that he's done some slasher movies. The way that you said he's done some film work definitely made me think you meant like he worked in porn. No, I'm sorry. But okay, slasher movies. People can work in porn, but that's not what I was going for. Slasher movies is cool. That's a neat little bit of trivia. Yeah. And Leopold would write Scooby-Doo Goes to Zombie Island and the next two directed tv movies so um which is ghost and alien invaders um but he does not write the fourth and final of this like quadrilogy technically the term is tetralogy although 20th century fox made up the word quadrilogy to talk about the alien films okay so he doesn't write the fourth one um scooby-doo and uh the cyber chase when writing scooby-doo on zombie island Leopold went back to an unused script that he had written for 
1993's SWAT Cat, The Radical Squadron. Also a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ripoff. So this unused episode provided a blueprint. And then Leopold and Dory actually disagreed over whether there should be like the soup, like really supernatural things or if it should be like uh, a plain mystery to be solved. Hmm. Leopold felt that the plain mystery is what we should do um, because that's at the core of what Scooby-Doo is. There's always something to be solved. Right. Dory, on the other hand, felt that for like a feature length movie, just the plain mystery would get tired by the end. And mm. so we should have the supernatural elements to keep things exciting and sure. keep the energy up. And so someone went to them and was like, why not both? Sure. <laughs> and that's how we got this movie. Now, there are three original songs in this movie. Okay. <laughs> Two of them are composed and written by Leopold as he is a member of the band Gun Hill Road. Okay. Now, you might be wondering, Sarah, you haven't talked about the director yet. Actually, I was wondering, what's the third song? <laughs> <laughs> so the director, Jim Stenstrom, is a bit of an anomaly. Okay. So he has been at Hanna-Barbera for a very long time, worked on many, many things. His first credit with Hanna-Barbera is 1982's Little Rascals, where he worked as a character designer. Um, and in fact, he worked as a character designer for a ton of shit. Always character designer. As far as um, things that are relevant to us, um, there's 1983's uh, new Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo character designer. He was a design supervisor on 1985's 13 Ghosts, uh, Scooby-Doo and the 13 yep. Ghosts. Um, you might be interested. Uh, he was a character designer on 1996's Superman, Last Son of Krypton. That went into the Superman animated series. Oh, oh, the pilot episode of Superman, the animated series, Last Son of Krypton. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Cool. Basically, all his credits are character designer. Got it. Except for these four movies where he's a director. Someone was like, we're going to do a Scooby-Doo project that's like actually 24 frames per second and not six. And he was like, my chance. <laughs> and after directing these four movies, he's disappeared. Oh. That might be a bit of a misnomer. He transitioned into Mic doing drop. some... <laughs> He commissioned into doing some comic books. He did write a couple issues of Vampirella. He wrote a few of his own comics uh, titled Thrill Kill and Rex Havoc and the Ass Kickers. Not heard of them. Yeah. Huh. And um, he has a website. The last blog post entry is dated 2017. Okay. He's just disappeared. Hmm. Interesting that, like, he didn't come out of the woodwork to talk about, like, to, to get interviewed by anyone when they did that, like, return to Zombie Island movie, like, last year or whenever that 2019, was. 2019, but yeah. 2019 was last year, Sarah. <laughs> I refuse to believe that it's 2022. Yeah, so he, he just disappeared. Huh. But the thing that's important to note here is that for the crew, as well as for the cast, they were like, ah, veterans of Hanna-Barbera. Time to unite. Right. So it's interesting that you bring up like veterans of Hanna-Barbera because you aren't wrong, but also... I'm not exactly right. I know. Only one person in the voice cast um, reprises their role from the original Scooby-Doo actors. 
Um, there had been like some Scooby-Doo voice changes over the years. Um, like Daphne changed after season one, for instance, but like for the most part, um, the original cast had stayed together through all of those various 70s and 80s projects that you mentioned with the exception of a pup named Scooby-Doo because they were all children in that. Mm -hmm. Um, But by 1998, they had to go with different actors for a variety of reasons. Um, In the case of Scooby himself, his original voice actor was Don Messick, who also did Astro and basically all of those like, like, you know, (laughs) Hanna-Barbera dogs. Um, He had passed away of a stroke in 1997. So like right before they made this, they definitely would have made it with Don Messick if he had still been alive. Um, So he had passed away. So Scooby-Doo in this movie and in the other three movies in this series that came after is played by Scott Innes. And Scott Innes was born in Poplar Bluff, Missouri on October 1st, 1966. So he was like three years old when Scooby-Doo came out. And he was cast in Scooby-Doo after having like a career in community radio in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is like still his main career today. Amazing. Like he did that and then he was cast as Scooby-Doo, did Scooby-Doo for a while. Um, He was the official voice of Scooby-Doo from 1998 to 2001 um, and then like went back to doing community radio. He was also the official voice of Shaggy from 1999 to 2001. So in the other three direct-to-video movies in this series he's shaggy as well as scooby he also played um shaggy and scooby in like cameos in around this period and including even after 2001 like if shaggy and scooby showed up like for a joke on an episode of harvey birdman or something like that like it would be scott innes doing them um he played them in video games until 2009 and he actually continues to play the pair to this day but only for commercials like, if Shaggy and Scooby show up to, like, I don't know, pimp a Ford Subaru at you, like, that's Scott Innes, but he doesn't do the main shit. Okay. Um, apparently, he mostly just focuses on, like, his family and, like, his community activism roles and, like, being involved in radio in his hometown. Um, he has played several other Hanna-Barbera characters, like, you know, Flintstones characters and whatnot. Again, only in commercials. And then he did have a role in the first... 2002 live action Scooby-Doo movie where he voiced the villain of that movie who is Scrappy-Doo in a very like meta thing about how the fandom hates Scrappy-Doo. Yeah. So in this movie, but not in the follow-ups, Shaggy, uh, full name Shaggy Rogers, although I don't know if Shaggy's his actual real first name now that I think about it, if that's just, it doesn't matter. Shaggy (laughs) is played by Billy West. Billy West was born William Richard Westine, Uh, In Detroit in 1952, which is sort of like finding out that um, Black Bolt's full name is Blackagar Boltagon. Um, Which is true. Yes. Uh, But he grew up in Boston and he actually would have been drafted to Vietnam in 1970, um, but he was classified 4F due to medical problems. Um, Now, he has ADHD and autism, but the medical problems he was excluded for were hypertension and flat feet. West had a career in comedy on radio in Boston and then New York, which led to a stint on the Howard Stern show, where basically any time they needed any kind of celebrity impersonation at all, it was Billy West. Okay. That led to him going to L.A. in 1995 to begin a career as a voice actor. He has played approximately 120 characters over a variety of 
of types of media, like a vast array of different things. And he is noted as disliking the like modern practice of using movie stars over professional voice actors in animated projects. Mm -hmm. So some of Billy West's best known roles include Doug Funny and Roger Klotz on the original Nickelodeon version of Doug, Stimpy on the original Ren and Stimpy show, and then Ren as well after creator John Crickfalusi was fired. He's one of the like rotating voices of Bugs Bunny um, and Elmer Fudd alongside Jeff Bergman and Eric Bauza. Specifically, you'd know Billy West as the voice of Bugs Bunny in Space Jam uh, and also the show Hysteria. He played Elmer Fudd in Space Jam and Looney Tunes Back in Action, as well as the Looney Tunes show. He was the voice of Woody Woodpecker on the new Woody Woodpecker show. And he plays the voices of Fry, The Professor, Zoidberg, Zap Brannigan, and Richard Nixon on Futurama and its various incarnations, whether it be show, TV movie, video game, whatever. That's enough roles that there are frequently scenes where it's just Billy West talking to himself. He was Popeye in the Quest for Pappy TV movie. Um, he was also Muttley and a lot of other voices on the most recent version of Wacky Races. And he reprised that role as Muttley on the most recent Scooby-Doo project, the big budget CGI film Scoob. The original voice of Shaggy was Casey Kasim, um, was no longer working with Hanna-Barbera at this time. And he, he has actually like made the conscious choice to leave several um, lucrative, I don't know about lucrative, iconic animated roles uh, over the course of his career for like principled moral stands. Yes. Um, I think he was the voice of Bumblebee originally on Transformers, which he left due to an extremely Islamophobic episode that they had in, I believe, the third season. As for Shaggy, um, he was all set to be Shaggy in this movie until he decided to be vegan, I believe. Vegetarian. Vegetarian specifically. Okay. Um, vegetarian. And I think he fell out with Hanna-Barbera specifically because Shaggy was like used in a commercial for like a burger company or something. So he refused to do that commercial because it was for meat yeah. eating yeah. stuff. And he was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And Shaggy should be vegetarian too. Yeah. And he... Hanna-Barbera was like, um, but Shaggy's whole deal is that he eats anything. Right. Yeah. It was, it was that he refused to do the commercial and that he would only do this movie if they rewrote Shaggy into being a vegetarian. Yeah. And it was like, no, he eats like giant, giant sandwiches. So yeah, so that's why Casey Kasim is not Shaggy here. He did return to the franchise in Mystery Inc. Um, I think he plays Shaggy's dad. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Moving on down the line, uh, we have Mary Kay Bergman as Daphne Blake. Now I will... Oh, do you know the story that I'm about to tell? Yeah, cool. I know the I story. spent about two hours crying earlier today over this. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Yeah. So Mary Kay Bergman plays Daphne Blake in this. And as I noted earlier, like Daphne had more than one voice actress on the original show, but had been largely consistent up to this point. I believe the role in this case was recast because they brought the main Daphne voice actress in to record. And she was like 71 years old and her voice just didn't sound the same anymore. Yeah. Now, Mary Kay Bergman was born in 1961 in L.A. Her parents were a singing 
duo, like a, a lounge singing duo. Um, although before meeting her dad, her mother used to be a cell painter for Fleischer Studios. She um, kind of grew up like with her mom showing her cartoons all the time because of that. Um, she also grew up like across the street from Adriana Casalotti, who was the original voice of Snow White. Oh, cool. Yeah. Bergman attended UCLA. She starred in like high school plays. Like she really wanted to be an actress. Um, but her attempts to get like an acting career off the ground were frustrated because things just always went wrong for her. Like she got signed by an agency and the agency signed her to like do a like late eighties, like fitness TV show of the kind that was very popular at the time. Um, a job that she got because she had a good figure. Like the agency told her like that was her main asset was her figure. Um, and then before the show could be produced, the agency went bankrupt. Oh no. Yeah. Things like this. So, um, you know, she worked other jobs. She worked as a receptionist. She did a bunch of other things working as a receptionist. Um, people on the phone would continually tell her like, Oh, you have a really good voice. Um, so she decided to try her hand at voice acting, which I think is really ironic given that her agency had been like, your body is your main like asset. Yeah. Turns out her main asset was actually her voice um, because she was an excellent impressionist. And originally like her calling card in animation was she was the person you brought in to basically take over roles from celebrity voice actors who had now become too expensive. So for instance, um, in the first season of Captain Planet, um, before it was on Cartoon Network, back when it was on, I think, like, just the main Turner broadcasting company, like, Turner Channel or whatever, um, all of the villains were played by, like, big-name movie stars. And then it went to Cartoon Network, and none of those people came back. So, like, Meg Ryan played Dr. Blight originally. Mary Kay Bergman took over that role because she could just perfectly imitate Meg Ryan. Um, and that was kind of, like, her whole deal. This included becoming the new official voice of Snow White. Bergman was also the original voice of basically all the female characters on South Park mm -hmm. um, under the name Shannon Cassidy. And she took the, the fake name out of concern for like conflict with her works at Disney. Because um, in addition to being the official Snow White, she just is like a bunch of different voices all throughout Disney. Yeah, South Park and Disney, they, they don't go. They don't mix. <laughs> I think she's the, um, they're officially credited as the Bim Betts in Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Yeah. She also provided numerous small voice parts for like just tons of film and television. And she became the official voice of Daphne Blake from 1998 to 2000. So Bergman suffered from bipolar disorder, um, which she didn't tell anyone about her whole life. She completely hid it from everyone. Um, and after her mother, uh, was diagnosed with cancer, um, she suffered like a very severe bout of depression, uh, which like from the point of view of her husband was kind of like, Oh, first I'm hearing about it kind of thing. Cause she'd been so good at hiding it before that. Um, so, you know, they did a bunch of things to try and like help her, um, and kind of, you know, may do the way that people with depression do. Um, but Bergman took her own life on November 11th, 1999, uh, shortly after contributing to a radio special on the 45th anniversary of Disneyland. Um, she like was on the radio, did the show, 
um, went home and her husband came home like an hour later and found her dead. Due to Bergman's death, um, many producers found themselves having to cast dozens of actresses to replace all the roles that she would do just like on her own, um, such as on South Park. She was replaced as Daphne by Grey Delisle at the request of her husband. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I just, that story really chokes me up. This like. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah, like her husband like went to Grey Delisle and like went to her house and sat her down and was like, you need to play Daphne. Yeah. Well, Grey Delisle was offered and she's like, I can't do that because she was friends. Mm -hmm. And yeah, her, um, Berkman's husband was like. No, you need to do this. Yeah, it has to be you. Because, like, otherwise it's, like, some stranger. Yeah, right? he was like, it has to be someone who knew her and loved her. Um, and, like, you know, he told Great Delia, like, you were her star student. Um, you know, so you need to pass on the torch. So the only member of the original cast who does reprise their role here is Frank Welker as Fred Jones. With over 860 credits, Frank Welker is one of the most prolific voice actors of all time. He was born in 1946 in Denver, Colorado, and he began his career as a stand-up comedian and an impressionist um, before getting his big break in voice acting as Fred Jones in Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Welker has played Fred in every version of the franchise except two a pup called scooby-doo where the character was a child and scoob which replaced the entire main cast with celebrities including zach efron as fred jones with the exception of welker playing scooby welker is extremely well known for his animal noises and basically any cartoon you've ever seen that has any animals in it at all easy money it's frank welker doing them and even if they didn't like get frank welker in a booth they're probably using like library sounds of frank welker yeah so some of frank welker's most notable roles (laughs) so don't at me if i forgot your favorite obscure one include Marvin and Wonder Dog on Super Friends. Herbie on the new Fantastic Four. Iceman on Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. Dr. Claw and Brain on Inspector Gadget. Tiamat on the Dungeons and Dragons animated series. Darkseid and Calabac on Super Friends. Baby Kermit and Baby Beaker on Muppet Babies. Yeah, then he should have played Baby Fred, come on. The Mogwai and the Gremlins in Gremlins and Gremlins 2. The original voice of Megatron on Transformers, um, including Transformers the movie. He's the Beagle Boys on DuckTales. He's Bo, Booker, and Sheldon on U.S. Acres. Totoro in the Disney dub of My Neighbor Totoro. Man Bat, but not Kirk Langstrom on Batman the Animated Series. Satan in Bill and Ted's <laughs> Bogus Journey. <laughs> Abu, Raja, and the Cave of Wonders in Aladdin, Return of Jafar, the Aladdin animated series, Aladdin and the King of Thieves, and the 2019 live-action Aladdin. Oh, nice. 
Slimer and Ray Stance on the real Ghostbusters and reprising the role as Ray Stance on extreme Ghostbusters. Godzilla on Godzilla the series, the late 90s Godzilla animated series that was based off of the 1990s American movie. He's the Martians in Mars Attacks. The Pegasus in Hercules. Malbolgia on Spawn. Ace the Bat-Hound on Batman Beyond. In 2002, as I already mentioned, he took over the role of Scooby-Doo from Scott Innes, with the exception of the two live-action movies. Um, although, as I mentioned, his voice as Scooby was the only returning voice in Scoob. Since 2006, he's been the voice of Curious George. He was the voice of Garfield from 2008 to 2013. He reprised the roles of Megatron and Soundwave on Transformers Prime, Soundwave and Devastator in the film Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, Shockwave and Barricade in Transformers Dark of the Moon, Galvatron in Transformers Age of Extinction, Megatron in Transformers The Last Night, Soundwave on Transformers Robots in Disguise, and he's also played his iconic roles of Megatron, Fred Jones, and Scooby-Doo in a variety of video games, a medium where he also provided the voice of silent film cartoon star Oswald the Lucky Rabbit as the villain in the video games Epic Mickey and Epic Mickey 2. And finally, I just have to add that he is also the voice of the iconic Forgotten Realms wizard Elminster in the original Baldur's Gate game. That moves us down the list <laughs> to B.J. Ward as Velma Dinkley. So like Daphne, um, Velma was a role that changed a couple times over the run of like the 70s and 80s shows. Um, for this film, they brought in voice actress B.J. Ward uh, to play Velma, who had not been Velma in any of the previous projects. She was born in 1944 in Wilmington, Delaware. Her full name is Betty Jean Ward, and she is yet again just another highly prolific voice actress. Uh, she got her start with Hanna-Barbera as the title role in Jaina of the Jungle, and she is also known as the original voice of Scarlet on G.I. Joe, um, in addition to being the voice of Velma in these four movies from 1998 to 2001. Moving away from the core Scooby gang and into the other, like, original characters of this movie, we have Adrian Barbeau as Simone Lenore. Adrian Barbeau was born in 1945 in Sacramento, California, and she moved to New York in the late 1960s and found work as a go-go dancer for mafia-run clubs. <laughs> From there, she managed to, like, make her way into Broadway shows. Um, she, like, was an understudy in Fiddler on the Roof and kind of, like, took over various parts at various times. Um, but her first starring role was actually an off-Broadway play that was a nude musical called Stag Movie in 1971. Adrian Barbeau is very hot, very attractive, uh, hot bod. Um... <laughs> She was also the original Rizzo in the Broadway version of Grease. And from 1972 to 1978, she won her most like mainstream fame playing Carol, uh, the daughter of the title character on the sitcom Maud, which was also a spinoff of All in the Family. She became a frequent TV guest star in the late 70s and like became known as a sex symbol. Um, she was basically known equally for her tough broad 
persona and her large breasts. <laughs> um, her husband at the time was horror director John Carpenter, who cast really? her. Yes. Who cast her in his 1980 film The Fog and his 1981 film Escape from New York. Uh, they divorced in 1984, um, but she appeared in a number of other horror movies. She appeared in George Romero's Creep Show in 1982 and Wes Craven's Swamp Thing in 1982 as well. In the 1990s, she transitioned her career to voice acting um, primarily. She still does like cameo guest appearances and things, um, but she's mostly a voice actor now after casting director Andrea Romano cast her as Catwoman in Batman the Animated Series. Tara Strong appears in this movie um, yes. as Lena Dupree. She was born Tara Cherendoff in 1973 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And she's actually credited as Tara Cherendoff in this movie because she hadn't married her husband yet. So Tara Strong is another voice you'll just recognize from everything. She started out on stage and TV, but she found her niche in voice acting. Her notable roles include Kylie Griffin on Extreme Ghostbusters, Batgirl in The New Batman Adventures, Batman Mystery of the Batwoman, Batman Return of the Joker, a variety of other DC animated universe projects, Bubbles on the original Powerpuff Girls, and it's like assorted spinoffs like the Powerpuff Girls movie. Timmy Turner on Fairly Odd Parents and its whole larger franchise. Ashi on Samurai Jack. Raven on Teen Titans um, and its like spinoffs. Ben Tennyson on Ben 10. Um, and she's reprised that role as like young Ben Tennyson when they've like done time travel stuff later because the character actually like ages as the series goes on. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, she's Huntress on Batman Brave and the Bold, uh, X-23 in a variety of other roles on Wolverine and the X-Men, Twilight Sparkle on My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, and the My Little Pony Equestria Girls like related side franchise. Um, she took over the voice of Harley Quinn after Arlene Sorkin retired. Uh, so Arlene Sorkin retired as Harley Quinn after the video game Arkham Asylum. And Tara Strong took over as Harley in the sequel, Arkham City. And basically for any voice acting projects since then, she's been Harley. Um, so that includes like DC Superhero Girls, where she also plays Batgirl, um, Justice League Action, and like a variety of those like PG-13 DC direct-to-video movies. And so, yeah, she's like mostly, I think for a lot of people, she's Raven or Batgirl or Harley Quinn, but she's definitely a voice you're just going to recognize immediately another long time voice actor in this cast is cam clark who plays detective Bo neville um he's probably best known as the original voice actor for leonardo on the original teenage mutant ninja turtles series uh, where he also played rocksteady he was also the original english voice actor of canada in the first english dub of akira <laughs> He was He-Man in the 2002 iteration of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. He's Mouse on The Tick, Doc Samson on Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. He's Max Sterling and Lancer Belmont on Robotech. Heath Burns in the various Monster High direct-to-video movies. And in the video game Baldur's Gate 2, he's the voice of famous Drow Ranger Dritzt Doerden. Uh, I also want to just note that Cam Clark is gay. 
He's out about it, and he's also lived with HIV for years. Moving on down the line, we have Jim Cummings, who plays the roles of Jacques and Morgan Moonscar, and he is another hugely prolific voice actor. Winnie the Pooh. Yes, correct. Um, So Jim Cummings was born in Youngston, Ohio in 1952. He grew up in New Orleans, and then he moved to Anaheim, where he ran a video store, and somehow parlayed that into doing voice work for Disney in 1984, replacing Sterling Holloway as the voice of Winnie the Pooh when Holloway passed away in 1988. He is still the voice of Winnie the Pooh. He's the voice of Winnie the Pooh in everything from 1998 on, including in the live-action film Christopher Robin from 2018. And in 2000, he also replaced Paul Winchell as Tigger and has been the voice of Tigger in everything since 2000. He's Razul and Farouk in any and all Aladdin stuff that those characters appear in. Um, Razul is the, like, main guard. He's Scar when Jeremy Irons isn't around. Uh, Starting with the 90s TV show Goof Troop and continuing on to today, he's the voice of Pete. He's Poetan in Pocahontas and its various sequels. He's the singing voice of Rasputin in Anastasia. He plays Ed the Hyena in all Lion King media, Darkwing Duck on Darkwing Duck and the DuckTales reboot, Dr. Robotnik in Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog and Sonic the Hedgehog, two different Sonic animated series made by the same company at the same time, and because it keeps coming up, he is Minsk in the Baldur's Gate series. Now, in 2001... Um, Jim Cummings married his wife, Stephanie Cummings, with whom he had two daughters. He also has two other daughters from a previous marriage. Jim and Stephanie divorced in 2011. In 2019, during a legal battle over child custody and like child care payments, Stephanie alleged that Jim had raped her in 2013 and abused the family dog, as well as other abusive and violent behavior, uh, death threats, sexual assault. Just like a whole laundry list. Jim asserted that her claims were false, um, that she has like drug addiction problems, um, that she was basically trying to just ruin his reputation and end his career so that he would give in to her demands in the custody battle. Um, and, you know, has pointed out to the the judge that like she frequently misses visitation uh, months and like misses um, payments and things. Um, and that like, She's known by, like, the police where she lives for, like, constantly calling the police in on things um, that turn out not to be there. Um, So there was this kind of, like, back and forth between the two of them in court. Um, Multiple authorities in three different states, uh, including, like, child services authorities, investigated all of these claims. And ultimately... Like, this stretched on for a while, but uh, as of 2022, uh, Jim Cummings has won sole custody of his children with zero contact permitted with their mother, Stephanie, um, and she had to pay a seven-figure number um, as, like, laid down by a judge for libel, slander, and defamation of character uh, against her husband since this all went, you know, public um, and was, like, spread around by tabloids and stuff. Next up, we have Mark Hamill as Snakebite Scruggs. Who's that? 
So Mark Hamill was born in Oakland, California in 1951, and although his career began as a teen idol with numerous TV guest appearances, everybody knows him best as Luke Skywalker in episodes 4 through 9 of the Star Wars saga. Outside of Star Wars, he appeared in films like Corvette Summer, The Big Red One, and The Giver, as well as like a lot of stage work in the 1980s. Big Red One? Good. Corvette Summer? Not good. However, despite, you know, a variety of roles in live action here or there, his biggest success outside of Star Wars has been as a voice actor. And his big break as a voice actor was playing the Joker on Batman the Animated Series starting in 1992, where he was actually like second choice for that role. They originally cast Tim Curry and then realized that Tim Curry was terrible for that role, despite like what you would initially think. What they realized was that Tim Curry can't laugh and make it sound genuine. Um, All of Tim Curry's laughs sound like kind of sarcastic and removed, and they needed the Joker to sound like he actually thought what he was doing was funny. So Mark Hamill came in, and Mark Hamill based his performance as the Joker on three sources. Claude Rains as the Invisible Man in The Invisible Man, the Blue Meanies in Yellow Submarine, and from when he played Mozart in Amadeus in the 80s. Um, on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. The Joker laugh is basically a Mozart laugh, and then it's like Claude Rains' personality and kind of a little bit of the Blue Meanie voice. Anyways, that role won him immense acclaim to the point where like he's played the Joker in movies and cartoons and video games for years, and for many people, he is considered the definitive Joker. So there's other people in the voice cast, um, but those are the big names. If I didn't mention someone in the voice, if I didn't mention someone in the voice cast who you think is a big name, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I love this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that's long and short of it. Uh, let's watch it now. Um, after they made this movie, it's getting ready to go to marketing. It's ready to you know be promoted. Um, Time Warner saw it and like, they were like, Uh the worst time in any movie's production (laughs) cycle is when the studio actually sees what you've been doing with their money. And they were like, oh shit, let's put money behind this. Mm, They liked it. And they put $50 million in promotions. Damn. That's like a whole movie's worth of money. Yeah. It was a huge push tons of brand Mm tie-ins from like spaghettios to like uh at the time there's like the dot-com craze like there was like like the nfts of the 90s like um tying in with the with scooby-doo okay so when i earlier mentioned that i thought it was like really weird as a kid that suddenly scooby-doo was everywhere on merchandise you knew that this was the explanation (laughs) okay wild (laughs) So, reception was incredibly positive from both critics and audience members. Um, It has an 88% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And um, it reinvigorated Mm Scooby-Doo in pop culture. As we've been saying, this is the first of four movies in like this kind of direct-to-TV series. 
because of the success of this movie, we get the 2002 live action movie, which also has a little bit of a similar premise at the beginning of, you know, they've split up and now they're coming back together. That has a sequel in 2004. And again, because of this movie, because of the uh, live action film, we get a new show. What's new, Scooby-Doo? Yes. 2002 to 2006. Yeah, I remember that. Um, since then, Scooby-Doo has been pretty much regularly on the air with Shaggy and Scooby-Doo Get a Clue uh, from 2006 to 2008, Mystery Incorporated, which you've talked about from 2010 to 2013, Be Cool Scooby-Doo from 2015 to 2018, Scooby-Doo and Guess Who from 2019 to 2021, and then, of course, Mindy Kaling's Velma, which is yet to be released. Uh, but I believe that's live action. That's live action, yeah. As yeah. is the um, aforementioned Scoob. Velma. And no, Scoob is CGI. Yeah. Um, but no, there was the Velma and Daphne, like, made-for-TV movie um, where they're, like, teens at a high school solving mysteries together. And they, they definitely aren't gay, probably. <laughs> There's gays we can get away with. Right. Um, so huge influx of Scooby-Doo mm. and, of course, Nostalgia Cells. And there is a direct sequel to this movie with the 2019 release of Scooby-Doo Returns to Zombie Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, folks, if you would like to watch along with us, you can rent Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, YouTube, and many others. Right. They have this widely available. Yeah. Well, folks, um, hopefully you can find a copy and watch along. Uh, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island from 1998, directed by Jim Stenstrom, mystery man Jim Stenstrom. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island from 1998, directed by Jim Stenstrom. Ben, you did not tell me that this was your first time watching this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you have to tell me what you thought. Sure. I think this movie is good. Um, I think it's quite good, actually. Um, it's well produced. It's well animated. There's high production value. You know, all around, good sound design, good music, um, etc. I think it's a really fun watch for the most part. I think it slightly drags in the middle, but I don't know if a kid would think it slightly drags in the middle. I mostly just think that because I find the middle a little bit repetitive. And I think, you know, how much you enjoy this movie is going to depend on sort of how you feel about the real supernatural being in your Scooby-Doo and if you agree with some of the writing choices or not and that kind of stuff. But I think that, like, that doesn't change that, like, this is sort of, like, objectively a good movie. Like, I think it's, you know, well-made and well-done. So, like, I have some, like, quibbles with it. But overall, like, it's a fun, fun watch. I'm so happy. I'm so happy you liked this. Yeah. I don't remember the last time I saw this, 
but I will say I was surprised how much was like buried in my subconscious. Sure, like knowing what was going to happen right before it happened and stuff. And knowing the music so well. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that, that was fun. Um, for me, I think this holds up. It's still just as good. There are things that now that I'm an adult and I understand the world and also understand a bit more about American history, yeah. I'm like... Um, yeah, there's, there's some uh, stuff, there's, there's some stuff that's a little odd. Um, I will say that I think this movie really, really benefits from being made when it was made, which is to say like 1998, you know, they have all the benefit of the nineties, like resurgence of Warner brothers animation, um, which like was motivated by tiny tunes snowballing into animaniacs and that snowballing into stuff like batman the animated series and freakazoid and um the tales from the crypt animated series and uh the hbo like spawn animated series and just all of these like um like warner brothers animation like really had this big resurgence especially on television at this time and so i think it really benefits from that and then it also benefits from coming out at that time when like it's benefiting from all of those things and we haven't yet made the transition over to like digital animation yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, which is to say not CGI, but like digitally produced 2d animation because at least initially, um, like if you go back to stuff from like the early two thousands, it looks a little rough. Like nowadays it's fine. It all looks great. But like that initial shift from like, hand-painted cells to digitally painted cells is like a little rough and there's some stuff from that time period that i don't think holds up as well but yeah like this movie looks great Mm -hmm. well for anyone who is not familiar with this movie let me give a quick rundown of the synopsis so it's been about a year since the mystery team split up um is it really just a year Well, I'm going off of the fact that, uh, so Daphne Blake now has a TV show and she's entering her second season. So I just kind of based it off of that. I was thinking the implication was like, you know, that they were teens on the old cartoon and they're all clearly adults now. So I thought more time had passed. That's fair. That's very fair. Um, so they were at least like 17 or 18 and now they are like early twenties. Yeah. Like Velma owns a store, right? So like... (laughs) It's unclear how much time has passed, but it's clear they're supposed to all be adults now. Now, they split up not because of any big falling out or anything, but because every mystery that they solved was a dude in a mask and it got a little repetitive. Um, So Daphne Blake went off to do her own TV show. It's Coast to Coast with Daphne Blake. And it's, you know, going into its second season, like I said, so successful. And Fred is her producer. As well as the crew. Yeah. (laughs) Which now that I know more about uh, the the entertainment industry, I'm like, oh, this isn't actually a successful TV show. Like they're making it out to be. Yeah, (laughs) no, something something on this scale would be like, you know, something that would be like a local favorite on like a local public access station. And then like maybe she could get like picked up on the national level and get like real money and a real crew because yeah, right now her whole show is her and her boyfriend with like a $3,000 prosumer camera and a van. Yeah. But in the context of the movie, it's a big deal. Yeah. She's on like a talk show at the start of the movie and stuff. (laughs) 
Velma, meanwhile, has opened up her own bookstore that specializes in mystery novels. And Shaggy and Scoob work as customs agents uh, looking for contraband food. Yeah, it's 1998. So like having them work as custom agents at an airport is like a funny joke and not like disturbing. (laughs) Despite the fact that when they were doing this as teens, they, they felt it was a bit of a repetitive outcome and Daphne found it a little boring. She does admit on this talk show that she misses the gang. So before she and Fred go out to uh, start filming for season two, that's titled Hauntings in America and specifically looking for like real hauntings. Um, it's close to Daphne's birthday. So Fred gets the gang together to like celebrate and then join them on this tour. We get a little bit of a montage showing them going to New Orleans specifically and solving some mysteries. Um, And again, it's consistently people in masks and Daphne is growing frustrated. And so she's kind of talking to the team out in New Orleans in like a market being like, oh, I just want to find some real ghosts. And this is when they meet Lena Dupree, who works at a haunted mansion on Moonscar Island, so named for Pirate Morgan Moonscar. She's like, well, I work at a haunted house. Come see it. So they head over there. And uh, on their way, they meet um, the ferryman Jacques, uh, a fisherman named Snakebite Scruggs, the mansion and plantation owner Simone Lenoir, and uh, their gardener Beau Neville. Now, this place is filled with cats. It's like a cat colony. Uh, Spay and neuter your pets, please. (laughs) Um, And so there is uh, cases where Scooby runs off and like chases them and is also derided constantly by Simone for being a dog. As the mystery continues, we get some ghost writing uh, on the wall spelling like, get out, beware. Um, We learn that parts of this mansion are made of Morgan Moonscar's ship. We find skeletal remains. And most importantly, those skeletal remains reanimate to create the zombie Morgan Moonscar. Now, there are a lot of uh, spooks and scares throughout the whole movie. Uh, The most significant being zombie Morgan Moonscar and a whole swath of zombies, um, a Confederate ghost coming out of a mirror, um, also Confederate zombies, and uh, tourist zombies. During some of these hijinks, uh, Freddy, who's been running around with this prosumer camera, um, trips and the videotape lands into quicksand. So all the evidence that they have gathered of real supernatural things uh, gets sucked into the quicksand. Whole camera goes into the quicksand, which is really upsetting because it's 1998. So that camera's probably like minimum three grand. Yeah. Yeah. During these hijinks, we also learn that these are real zombies. They aren't people in masks. They aren't animatronics. Um, There's uh, one of my favorite scenes where they're trying to rip this mask off and they literally rip a head off a zombie. It's... It's quite gruesome and I love it. (laughs) Now, this is all happening over the course of like them being there this evening into the night. Uh, And it happens to be the night of the harvest moon. And long story short, our gang, along with Bo the gardener, fall into the trap of Lena and Simone, who turn out our vampiric werecats, worshipping a cat god and practicing voodoo. Uh, ferryman Jacques is also a werecat, and he's out chasing after Shaggy and Scooby. And we learn a little bit more about 
what's up with the werecats? And Simone explains that she and Lena, 200 years ago, were part of a cat cult on this island. Uh, when Morgan Moonscar showed up to bury his treasure and just like slaughtered their entire village. Um, Lena and Simone managed to like escape and hide, but basically Morgan Moonscar forced all of the villagers into the water where they were eaten alive by alligators. Fantastic. As revenge, Lena and Simone um, prayed to their cat god who uh, gave them werecat powers to destroy Morgan. However, this was almost like a curse on them because every harvest moon they need to suck the life force from a human being in order to stay alive. They're vampire werecats. Yeah. Um, so over the years, they uh, would kill settlers. Uh, for example, um, some people came to the island to start growing a hot pepper plantation. Um, and after killing those people, they uh, took over the plantation. They would kill Confederate soldiers who were here uh, during, during the, the Civil, Civil War, War. Um, and tourists who were lured here by Lena um, over the course of these 200 years. Now we get some more hijinks and, uh, you know, back and forth, which delays this ceremony long enough that the moon moves past its apex and Simone, Lena, and Jacques decay in front of the gang's eyes. The zombies also decay with Velma giving the explanation that, um, yeah, their souls are free to go rest now, rest in peace. And just as everything's kind of ending, a Confederate ghost appears to Scooby to say, thank you <laughs> as he salutes. And Scooby is just like shaking because it's a ghost. And also a Confederate soldier. <laughs> it's at this point that we learned that Bo was actually a detective investigating the many disappearances on this island. And he's like, well, I don't think my superiors are going to believe this. Also, that weird fisherman, Scruggs, he was just a he's weird just, fisherman. He's just a red herring, yeah. Yeah. And that's the end. So... Like I said, this movie absolutely holds up for me. It's still funny. It's still spooky. Um, I really love the zombie head unmasking scene, but throughout all of it, the zombie stuff is really good. They still have the hijinks of like zombie taps, shaggy on the shoulder, shaggy turns, and then is scared. Like mm -hmm. they have classic Scooby-Doo gags throughout. Yeah, I think it's um, kind of mildly hilarious to see these like Hanna-Barbera character designs next to like, 90s warner animation characters yes. like simone you know looks like if selena kyle on batman the anime series got like a short haircut but then i also really like that everyone including fred daphne and velma are treated like real people but shaggy and scooby are like specifically cartoon characters like cartoon yeah. physics and everything like all apply to them like they eat hot peppers and like fire comes out of their ears and stuff like they are cartoon characters but everyone else is sort of treated as like real i guess yeah they get fired from their customs agent job because they eat all of the contraband food and they are shown as being like uh like uh penelope blueberry from Willy Wonka? Right, yeah, they, they're rotund. Yes. yes. Yeah, so cartoon physics only applies to these two. Also, when Lena discovers that they have a dog as they're heading towards the island, she goes, oh, you have a dog? Well, make sure it doesn't chase the cats. And it does not react to the fact that Scooby talks. Nobody reacts to the fact that Scooby talks. Yeah. Like, it's just there. Yeah. Um, which I think is probably for the best. Absolutely. I think, like, here's the thing. I can go on about, like, 
oh, I don't like it when the real supernatural shows up in Scooby-Doo, but like there is a talking dog. So one thing I'll say is I was really glad to find that this movie, um, I was talking about this a little earlier. I really liked the animation Mm -hmm. in this movie. And I was kind of worried about the animation in this movie because there's like a specific look for the Scooby-Doo characters that I always associated as being from these direct-to-video movies, like a certain color palette that I think is probably from like how they're depicted maybe on like merch or like the DVD covers for these movies or something, but I hate it. It's a really ugly color palette. And I thought it was from these, but this looked great. Um, And the one thing that I really dislike from animated stuff around the turn of the century is where they had like cell animation and then like digitally put shadows on things. This is like real shadows, like real inked black shadows and not like some weird shadow program put on things that looks bad. So I really liked the animation here. The part where I thought it dragged in the middle was kind of the part that you like skipped over basically in the plot synopsis where like there's multiple instances of like Scooby and Shaggy going off into the wilderness for some reason, running into like a zombie, running around screaming, bumping into Bo. Oh, isn't Bo suspicious? Bumping into the rest of the gang, the gang being like, I don't see any zombies or whatever. Like this happens kind of like three times before finally like the gang also sees all the zombies and stuff. So that was the part where I thought it was like, okay guys. But I think if you were a kid, You wouldn't Mm -hmm. find that boring. It's just like I'm an adult, so I want to get more story. But I think a kid would like the hijinks, right? I think so. But also you are getting pieces of the story because it's still, you know, a mystery. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, who is suspicious here? And why is someone out here? Why is there this big hole? And so that, that would be... In like the traditional old school cartoon, that would be the hijinks as they go looking for clues. Yeah, absolutely. I I really enjoyed that this was still a mystery, Mm -hmm. um, even though the supernatural is real. Like there's still suspects and clues and red herrings and things. Um, The characters are actively guessing about like who's behind it, whose face are they going to see when they pull the mask off the ghost. And I like that they kind of do it while like sometimes those suspects are just like in the room with them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Poor Bo. <laughs> I also really liked the way that the story gives Daphne more of a role than I think she had on the show um, by like centering her as the face of the group with like Fred as her support. Because my memory of the show, like the original show was like Fred's the face of the group and the leader and Daphne's just like his girlfriend. That's a structure that's kind of held over because of it being structured off of the many loves of Dobie Gillis Mm -hmm. because Dobie is Fred and that's like the main central character in that. Uh, So I totally agree with you here. Yeah, it was just good to give Daphne like her own motivation. Um, So now like Daphne wants to find a real ghost. So it gives her character like something because, you know, Shaggy and Scooby are the cowards in their comic relief. Velma is like the nerdy one who's investigating the clues. You know, so it just gave Daphne like an identity, which I really liked. It also gave a really neat friendship between Freddy and Velma because both of them are like, yeah, but what's the logical thing here? Yeah. So it had them bonding in a way that I don't really remember there being a ton in the original show. No, the original show was basically like... Freddy comes up with the trap. 
Daphne is put in danger. Velma finds the clues and, as you said, Shaggy and Scooby are the cowards. Right. And there's kind of, you know, Freddy and Daphne are always paired up and Shaggy and Scooby are always paired up and Velma is just kind of by herself. So, yeah, I think making um, Velma and Freddy both skeptics made a lot of sense. Um, I will say one of my quibbles with this movie is I don't like, oh, it was just the same shit over and over as the reason the group broke up. Um, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense to me. It kind of rides the line too close to being like critical of the original show, Mm. like trying to be like, oh yeah, the original show was really boring and repetitive, wasn't it? Well, we're spicing it up a notch with a real ghost. And like, there's even a song about like how it sucks that it's always a guy in a mask or whatever. I don't really like that. I don't like it when reboots or like reunions or refreshings of like big franchises feel the need to like kind of shit on the previous version mm-hmm. like it's just always really tiresome to have like aquaman being like i'm do more than just talk to fish and it's like my dude it's okay if all you do is talk to fish dude also like within the context of your own world like that should be dope like why would anyone think that's lame like if someone really could talk to fish that would be incredible right anyways yeah i'm totally with you i think they did it as a easy way to explain where the group has been Mm. and why they're coming back together. Yeah. I think the like, let's get the gang back together thing is a good idea. Given that this is the first Scooby-Doo thing in years at this point. I mean, honestly, they could have just made it like, yeah, the gang is all like Daphne's crew on her TV show and just skipped that whole element. But I can see why they wanted to do that element um, to kind of give it that meta feeling that Star Trek, the motion picture feeling of let's get the gang back together. But as a reason for why the group broke up, it doesn't really seem to fit how fast they all get back together again and how Daphne seems to be like the only one who's even bothered by the fact that they don't find real ghosts. Like no -hmm. one else seems to care about that. So that just makes it seem like Daphne broke up the group, which I don't think is what they wanted to be going for here. I didn't pick that up at all, but I see where you're coming from. Yeah, I I don't think it's there. I'm just saying it's the only logical conclusion based on everything else. And if that's the case, like that doesn't fit the fact that like she's super happy to see them all again and all be around each other again. Like you said in your synopsis how like there wasn't any one big thing, but I think it would have been maybe better if there was or like honestly, they could have just had it be like, yeah, it's like 10 years later and they're all adults and the group isn't together anymore because they all had to, you know, go get jobs. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I also disliked the thing where like Daphne's on the talk show and she's like, Oh yeah, it was always just like some corrupt white guy. It was really boring because I think it would have been stronger if like her time in mystery Inc is why she's a reporter. Um, Cause mm-hmm. they set up like, Oh, she's a reporter. And I was like, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like if she's like an investigative reporter who like, you know, finds out like when senators have like, you know, dark money connected to them or whatever, like, like because she learned how to root out corruption as a teen. Um, but instead, I don't know if she, like, they call her a reporter, but based on the description of her show, it sounds sort of like a fluff TLC show about like Americana where like, I'm sure like each episode is like, and here we are in West Virginia looking at like this historic site or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that would likely be because the movie wants to get to the gang back together and then get to the stuff. I think it would have been stronger. Absolutely. If, uh, there was a little bit more there. 
Yeah, and then like they do this montage, as you said, of like finding all these fake ghosts on the way to the main island. And each time they like pull a mask off someone, like Daphne's like, ah, cut, like this isn't usable, this is garbage. The ghost is here and it's always a fake. The ghost is here, there's no reason to shake. The ghost is here, I'll give us a break. It's fake. And it's like, that's all still great material, Daphne. Like, people would watch that show. In fact, they did. They for, literally did. They literally <laughs> did. Um, and also, she's making a TV show, not a documentary. So I feel like it's like, no, you need, like, you need to feed the content beast here. Like, you should just be putting these out as episodes anyway. And, you know, the conceit of the show is like, maybe one day we'll find a real ghost. Like, you're doing fucking BuzzFeed Unsolved over here. <laughs> Yeah, I'm totally with you there. There is like a neat push pull of like debating whether when they're on the island, if it's people in masks or supernatural. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of wish that the discussions went a little bit deeper than just like, well, I think it's someone in a mask, but don't you wish it was supernatural? Cut to Shaggy and Scooby running through the woods. Sure. Like I wish that there was a little bit more there. But again, this is also a kid's movie. Yeah. It's very lean in the way that, it, you know, the pacing is. So I, I understand why we don't go too deep. Okay, here's where I'm a little torn because I like that the movie goes a little dark with like how scary it can get. Sure. Um, the fact that the supernatural is real and that people feel so threatened with everything. Yeah, you can tell that the animators really had fun with like being told that the brief for this movie was, hey, the monsters are real and we're trying to aim for like a slightly older audience. Mm -hmm. So they were like, oh, okay, we can make the zombies like real gnarly, right? Yeah, and even the transformation scene for Lena and Simone to turn into cat people yeah. uh, was like, oh, you you saw anime. Yeah, you yeah. saw like the transformation for Sailor Moon and was like dope. Yeah, or like, you know, they've watched like Vampire Hunter D or something. Like they've, they've seen anime transformation sequences for sure. Yeah, yeah, but this movie really suffers with it kind of taking place in what I'm going to be describing as a whitewashed version of New Orleans. Sure. Uh, because we're in New Orleans and we see like ghosts of like Confederate soldiers and no one comments on the fact that like, hey, where are all the black people? Yeah, there is a black person who walks by in the market in foreground. I did and notice them. It. That is it, though. Like, it feels almost like it's whitewashed in the sense of, like, we don't want to talk about that part of our history. I mean, I can understand why they don't, because it's just a fun Scooby-Doo movie for Cartoon Network. But, um, yeah, it starts to get uncomfortable when they get to the island and it's like a plantation. Yeah. And I was like, I turned to you and I was like, are the ghosts the ghosts of slavery? And then it's like. Well, there's also Confederate soldiers here, but there aren't any black slave ghosts because that would have been uncomfortable. But why include the Confederate soldier ghost? You didn't need to do that. You could have not had it be a plantation and you could have not had the Confederates and kept basically most of everything else. Or put thrown in some Union soldiers, you know? Sure, sure. Um, I think the idea was supposed to be that, like, they lured the Confederacy here to make a base on, like, a barracks on the island so that they could, like, suck them dry of their life force um, as per 90s broadcast standards and practices version of phrasing things um, and that they weren't killed in, like, battle or something. There's just some weird things, right? Like, 
when I first saw this movie as a kid, mm. I loved the backstory of like, yeah, we became vengeful cat creatures. Right, and of course. Of course, like we're like now killing indiscriminately. And I loved having that like historical aspect to them living here and the zombies literally like rising from the blood soaked ground. Mm -hmm. And that probably ties into like part of my love of like gothic and southern gothic stories mm -hmm. but the fact that like every person we see even in like this flashback of like the cat cult yeah. um the pirates the settlers like they're all white people and it's just a little weird well and given it, the actual history of new orleans yeah for sure and like i don't think simone and lena are reliable narrators true but also yeah there's just like a bunch of things that don't quite make sense so this is my my biggest problem with the movie honestly like my problem with the movie didn't end up being that the supernatural was real it was more just that the movie goes kind of off the rails at the end <laughs> like once we got to the reveal of who was behind everything i'd already pegged lena as like the voodoo using villain like i'd figured that much out uh lena is like specifically stated to be cajun i think um and it's sort of like implied that other people here are as well um you know people have cajun accents however i had I'd figured out that she was the villain and she was doing the voodoo i hadn't you know seen vampire werecats coming because i don't think there's any way to see vampire werecats coming and personally I think that's just like one thing too much. Like you've gone from a franchise where like ghosts aren't real and it always turns out to be a dude in a mask. And you made that like text here too. Like that's part of the story here that we're trying to find some real ghosts. And then you introduce like real ghosts and zombies. That's the undead. And then like at the ending, you're like also voodoo and vampire werecats. Well, because if the zombies are real, mm -hmm then why are they here oh, oh, and they sure. have to kind of explain and it just kind of escalates from there. I, I, I think they could have had an explanation with Lena and Simone being like, you know, people driving the life force from visitors to the Island and like being voodoo practitioners and like all that. I don't think they needed to be vampire werecats. Like that's just like <laughs> a few things too many for me. It's a cool surprise, but my problem with it is that it ends up requiring a ton of explanation <laughs> and as you're pointing out like and, and that explanation is coming like during the climax right it's sort of like if like at the end of return of the jedi when like luke is fighting vader like the emperor was just in the background like explaining what sith are and explaining how he turned like vader to the dark side and like just giving his whole life story it's like this is not the time for this pacing wise um but then as you point out the explanation doesn't really make sense um, I don't think Lena and Simone are reliable narrators <laughs> because, okay. I do appreciate that when they explain like, well, then why is Jacques cat? He, they're like, well, he was old and wanted immortality. So we gave it to him. Yeah. Very like <laughs> done. Right. Yeah. Like there's almost this feeling in the last scene where we're getting this exposition where some of the questions that the gang asks her are like notes they got on the script from like the producer and the writers being like, all right, fine. I'll answer that too. <laughs> um, because it's like, okay, we have this group of settlers who are all white, who have come to this Island to practice voodoo and worship a cat God. And it's like, okay, for one thing, worshiping a cat God is not like a voodoo thing. You're conflating some stuff Two, voodoo and also worshiping cat gods, not exactly like a white person thing to begin with. Like, where did you guys 
come from? I know that like white people came to North America to flee like religious persecution, <laughs> but like this is wild. And then they're like, oh yeah, the pirates came to the island and they just slaughtered us indiscriminately because they were bad guys. That's not really how pirates do. I'm going to sidestep the fact that no pirate ever actually buried any treasure ever. Um, and that's a total just Robert Louis Stevenson made that up. But they get here. It's like, why would you slaughter everyone indiscriminately? Because they I, saw where he buried the treasure. No uh, witnesses. It's wild. They just kind of come <laughs> across like these people doing their cat ritual out under the moon and having like a party with like food out. And they're just like start flipping tables and shit. <laughs> I feel it's way more likely that these pirates showed up and were like, oh, holy shit, it's like a cat cult worshiping like a demon cat. Like these are, like it's the 1700s. These are like major heretics. These are demon worshipers. Like, are I you feel like saying the pirates were like, these guys aren't Catholic? Yeah, like I feel like it was the pirates <laughs> being like, like what the, like you're talking about a time period where people like really believed in like demons and shit and like you would be terrified out of your mind. Like these guys are coming across a bunch of, like unchristian cultists they're like we have to root out this fucking heresy man um turns out morgan moonscar was part of the spanish inquisition right um well you know it's like they're pirates that doesn't mean they're not christian um so then like they kill all these people i forget the oh yeah they the the werecats kill them right and then it's like oh some other people came later and built a plantation and started this pepper plantation and we like waited till the harvest moon to kill all of them. And it's like, they show like white people like working in the fields, picking the peppers, which is like, <laughs> Oh, good for you. <laughs> um, that doesn't really explain why the plantation, like why the mansion Chose here, why is the mansion built out of the pirates old boat? Like there's an implied span of time. Like that doesn't make sense. And then it's like, yeah. And then the Confederates came and, and did a thing. And then these people came and did a thing. And it's like, Instead of the clues all kind of tying together, it's just like, oh, yeah, the reason why there's all these different things here is because different people have come to the island across history and we've killed them. Well, if we think back to the production history, mm. um, the blueprint for this movie came from the like super cats, radical in space or whatever. Right. Uh, so that they started with the cats. I see. And then built it out from there. Right. Yeah, and then it's just this thing where, like, they're in this weird damned if you do, damned if you don't thing. Because it's super weird that there's no black people here. But also, like, having, like, slave ghosts would be really uncomfortable. Yeah. But then also, like, it's totally weird that it's a bunch of white people practicing, like, voodoo. But then, like, if the villains had been, like, the black, only people, black people, that would have been really uncomfortable. Yeah. So they're in this, like, bad situation. I really think that things could have been a lot more simple if just, like lena and simone are practicing voodoo and we just kind of drop the cat part of it you know like i think i think you know and and oh yeah like the pirates came and killed everybody and like we learned like voodoo from like the old witch doctor on the island or whatever so that we could make this curse against them but then we were cursed to like go we had to do life force draining like they could have simplified it a bit yeah. um because it's just a lot at the very end that's fair I really like the end. I really love how it ramps up like that. Um, I loved how you didn't see it coming. It's fun. Like <laughs> undeniably it's, it's a fun moment when you're like, wait, what? I'm just saying that like on a, on a craft structural level, it kind of overloads the narrative a bit. Yeah, totally fair. I think 
just to kind of pull it back a hint, mm. uh, just to briefly talk about the music, mm. uh, the score by Stephen Bramson is really good. Yeah. Um, the original songs are great, particularly The Ghost is Here and It's Terror Time Again. Do you hear the screeching of an owl? Do you hear the wind begin to howl? You know there's zombies on the prowl. And it's terror time again. They've got you running through the night. Two songs that uh, Glenn Leopold wrote for I misspoke in the context setting I said he composed them as well uh, he just wrote the lyrics yeah but yeah uh, this I really like this movie I don't think there's anything in my subconscious related to cats with this movie because um, I remember liking cats before but as you all know Ben I hate zombies you do. and they're really terrifying and I think a lot of that comes from this movie well, that's odd because I was sort of thinking about how weird it is that like this is one of your favorite movies from when you were a kid, given how much you don't like zombies. And also like you have like a very visceral reaction to zombies. You have a visceral reaction to like zombie-esque things, right? Like the the weird like homunculuses from the end of like Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood and stuff. Like It even took me a little bit with the Draugr in Skyrim. Yeah, like just like undead things that are attacking you. But like watching this movie, you were fine. Well, I won't say fine. I definitely like was still like, ah. Okay. I didn't notice at all. Okay. Um, That's because you were so taken by the movie itself. Mm. So yeah, I think uh, we could probably tie my fear of zombies to this movie. So thanks, Scooby. Interesting. They keep it really vague, as we mentioned, how long it's been since the old show. Because I am very curious just how much older everyone is supposed to be. As I said, they're obviously all adults because like, they all they have, have jobs. jobs and Velma owns a store, um, which I feel really bad for her owning a like indie specialist niche brick and mortar uh, bookstore in 1998. It's only a matter of time. She's going to get demolished by Amazon. Yeah. Um, but I feel like the reason that Shaggy always ate so much was sort of a double gag about like stoners and the munchies, but also just like teen metabolism. Like you can see like a super thin teen and they'll like eat everything and not gain any weight. I feel like it might've been like, I understand why they didn't do this, but I feel like it would have been funny if like Shaggy now had a bit of a gut because he's <laughs> older and he can't just eat everything without gaining a pound anymore. That's I, fair. I understand why they like kept the silhouettes the same, you know, and didn't change the character designs too, too much. Um, that said, I did really like Daphne and Fred's adult redesigns. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wish that Velma had gotten one too. Like I understand like with Shaggy, there's a gag in the movie where he like opens up his suitcase and he's packed multiple sets of the same identical clothes. And that's a really funny gag and I don't want to lose that. So that can stay. But I, I would have liked maybe Velma's design to get a bit more like modernized and more adult rather than her just wearing the same clothes that she did when she was a teenager yeah that's just sort of neither here nor there yeah just a thing that i wanted to talk about uh well folks thank you for hanging out with us on this bonus horror adjacent episode on scooby-doo on zombie island yeah i'm glad that i didn't philosophically object to this movie as much as i thought i would um i still prefer the supernatural not to be real in scooby-doo but i really appreciated that it was still a mystery story and wasn't just kind of like a monster 
story. So I think that really helped sell yeah. it uh, to me. So yeah. We do these horror adjacent episodes once a month. Thanks to the support of our patrons on patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Um, patrons of any level are able to vote for next month's selection uh so if you would like to have a say in what we cover next month uh head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast we'll be back to our regularly scheduled episodes each and every wednesday with the next horror adjacent episode coming out about a month from now thank you so much for listening and we'll see you then bye bye bye